is Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Hello, we're reunited back on the same continent. Oh, it's been so long. It has been. I'm feeling a little upset because I brought a gift and I've just been I rummaging. I thought you were going to say feeling upset to be seeing me again. Well, you know, not, not yet. I mean, it's only been a few seconds, yeah, hasn't true. it? But, um, I, I brought a gift for everybody and I've just been rummaging through my uh, luggage and I can't find it anywhere. And what was it anyway? It was a box of chocolates, a tin of chocolates uh, in the shape of different American presidents. How fantastic. Yeah, and I was going to do a little test and see because you, you're good on your American oh, politics. Should we like, just like pretend? Yeah, who's this? George Washington. Yes! <laughs> Hurrah! Who's this? Ronald Reagan. It's Lincoln. I mean, what's, oh, what's sorry wrong with about you? That. Yeah, I, t- I don't know where that went. Um, I'm, I worry that maybe uh, my bags got checked and um, one of the people on security thought, I'm going to have that for myself. Where did you buy it? Uh, in Chicago. I once heard a story of somebody who um, got home from a trip and they opened up the suitcase and their brand new trainers are gone and been replaced by, like, a mucky old pair of trainers. So somebody had gone through thought, all right, I'm having those, and just left their own, which I thought was thoughtful of the person to put their own shoes in there instead. You didn't find a sort of, you know, grungy packet of M&Ms or something? No. <laughs> Replacing them. So I got a gift from from Sweden, which I forgot also to bring along, which is a, a little kind of wind-up accordion-type thing. I don't know if you could call it accordion. That like plays a music the, box thing. The music box thing that plays the International, you know, the, the revolutionary song. Wow. And the head of the Olaf Palme Institute. Uh, Olaf Palme was a very kind of famous Swedish prime minister who was tragically killed on a night out going to see a film with his wife um, and, and admired around the world. Anyway, she gave me this little music box thing that, that played the International. And have you been listening to it relentlessly? No, but I just said it was a nice gift. Yeah, that would be... Yeah. And you you could have guessed the song. Uh, yeah, yeah. I, mean, anyway, I think yeah. I would have been about as good at that as you would be at American Presidents. Perhaps. Well, maybe I'd be slightly better at the American Presidents. Well, I think I'd be pretty good at songs. Oh, do you? Game, name that tune. You think? If they ever bring it back. Really? I, I, Shazam. It, you're like a human Shazam. That's me. <laughs> and um, So is it nice to be back? It is nice to be back. And I, I was going to... Um, Eugene's had a bit of jet lag, hasn't he? Yeah, I say it's nice to be back. We've, we've been up for between two and three hours in the middle of the night every night um which is a joy so if i don't seem quite with it today that's and why i've had this incredibly nice email from your mother-in-law inviting me to thanksgiving dinner in 2018 oh god i oh. mean it's a, it's so i mean I, I guess you know i'm sure i'm sure it's nothing to do with her disappointment having you as a son-in-law <laughs> No, no, I, that was a mean thing to say. Um, no, it was such a nice email from Lynn Barron. Dear Mr. Miliband, my name is Lynn Handelman Barron, and I, th- I think you have one of the most interesting and terrific podcasts. I listen to it every week. I've enjoyed every episode. Your co-host, Jeff Lloyd, just happens to be my son-in-law. As you know, he spent 11 days in Chicago. It's a wonderful city, and Thanksgiving is my favourite holiday. And no religion and decoration, great decorations. And since I was interested in your description of the festivities, I want to extend an invitation to you, Justine, uh, and my kids. Isn't that nice of her? Well, well, it is, but my wife will be uh, curling up into the fetal position in embarrassment. Really? This, yeah, a mum writing into the podcast. No, but it's, it's something nice. I'm used to, so it's water off a duck's back to No, me, I thought but... it was really nice of her. So you're saying you will be there in 2018? Well, I can't guarantee I'll be there in 2018, you know, kids are at school Typical politician, but, but no. weasel words. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I refuse to give a yes, no answer. But I do want to go to Chicago. Um, and I will definitely look forward to meeting your mother-in-law. And how, how has your week been? 
My week's been fine. Can I tell you my cheerful reason to be cheerful? Yeah, yeah. Let's let's do that. So I went trampolining. What? A man of your physical dexterity. Exactly. I went trampolining, and I lived to tell the tale. Where did you go? Well, we went to this trampoline. You weren't centre. auditioning for Blue Peter, were you? I wasn't. Because no, famously, that's that. what they make the when the presenters are auditioning for Blue Peter. They have to do a piece of camera on a trampoline. That's how they uh, they see if they're up to the job or not. Well, it was really I. I so, so it was really for my kids. I I was in Doncaster for the weekend with my uh, kids for various constituency things I was doing. And I thought, well, let's go and do something nice. And so we went a trampolining to a place called uh, Jump Inc., which is uh, nearby in Rotherham. And um, it was really, I would strongly, strongly recommend it. There, there was only one slightly awkward moment because... So so initially I kind of went with them and et cetera, and we were with another family and they said, well, what are we going to do? Just sit watching them for an hour. So I said, okay, fine, we'll do it. And it was for someone with my lack of coordination, it was quite, quite – and there is actually a video which, depending on how many downloads we get, we might possibly <laughs> post a, maybe a little bit of, of me doing this. But so that was all fine. But there's a kind of quite strong rules for safety reasons. And one of them is you're not supposed to – have more than one person on a trampoline at one time. I mean, there's lots and lots of trampolines there and you can play tag and et cetera, which we did with the kids and that was all fine. I didn't fall over really, so that was all all right. But then this very tiny tot came onto my trampoline and then sort of bounced off in a kind of slightly comedy fashion and then burst into tears. And of course, I then... You know, people started looking at Does me. Did it look if, like you'd kicked a child no, off a trampoline? No, it looked like I bounced onto her trampoline <laughs> and sort of bounced her out. And so I was sort of thinking, "Oh my god, I have to explain here that this really wasn't that she came onto my trampoline." But then, but then you're sort of arguing about the kind of a two-year-old, and then it, so I. But it was it sort of passed off without too much incident, but but it was it was a potentially awkward moment. What position do we need to get to in the iTunes chart for you to show us that video? I'm desperate to see that now. Maybe a million downloads. Okay, okay. Um, my reason to be cheerful is my brother-in-law, who uh, I mentioned last week, runs a food truck in Chicago, which I believe my mother-in-law has also invited you to for a sandwich. Um, the Fat Shalot. The Fat Shalot, that's the one. Um, so the, a few weeks ago, we addressed the marijuana laws in America we on did. the podcast. My, my brother-in-law, from what I understand, was a pioneer in... <laughs> trailblazer. <laughs> trailblazer. <yeah. laughs> Something blazer. Uh, when he was a student. And part of uh, his, his enthusiasm for taking would manifest itself in he would sit and watch the film Love Actually with his friend every day uh, in um, a, a somewhat altered state of consciousness. And... As a consequence, it is the to watch that film with him is the funniest thing because he knows it off by heart. Wow. And yeah, and, yeah, and I, you watched it with him, did you? Yeah, every year it's become a tradition. We will sit and he will point things out and recite the lines before the characters get get to them. And I once interviewed Richard Curtis, the director and writer of that film, and my brother-in-law wrote me an A4 sheet of questions to ask. And Richard Curtis was. His mind was blown that anybody would pay this level of attention. How many times has your brother-in-law watched it? Oh, I would guess at hundred. I mean, his ability uh, to to remember it and analyse it. So, I mean, it's, I don't think it's the greatest of films. No, I mean, it's, it's quite. Gonna, it's quite, it's quite it's a good gonna, moment. Yeah, yeah, but I see it in this whole other light. He asked me to ask Richard Curtis at the at the scene at the end when the small kid is running through the airport to to chase after the girl that he loves and tell her his feelings when he comes back you can see that he has some glitter on his hands why 
I'd never, I mean, never noticed. And that. what did Richard Curtis? He's say? like, what? He said, "Oh, I can't believe you noticed that. We had a scene in the film where the kid was supposed to throw glitter into the air, and it didn't make the final cut. And we thought nobody would notice that." He's but your brother-in-law did notice. He notices everything. So we watched that film with him, and it was a, it was a great pleasure. And I thought it was worth mentioning as well because don't you wish that Theresa May would do a Love Actually? I tell you what, on the day day that we are recording this, if ever there was a love actually moment for Theresa May is now, you know, we're on the day that uh, Donald Trump has tweeted back at her for her spokesperson's criticism um, of him about tweeting these Britain first terrible, hateful videos and all of that. Um, And, uh, you know, if ever there was a moment for her to say, she doesn't even need to talk about the state visit. She can just say... Yeah, I did stand up to you because you're just wrong and it's hateful and it's not who Britain is and, you know, just, you know, bugger off, basically. I mean, she, okay, it's, you know, but but it feels like it's set up for her, doesn't yeah. you think? Yeah, but of course she's not in a position where she's. Well, she, she hasn't it. done it so far. We'll see. Maybe, maybe hopefully that maybe will live from Riyadh. She'll be doing it. <laughs> hopefully, it will have changed by the time the podcast comes out. So, should we talk about what we're talking about this week on the podcast? Yes, we are talking about millionaires and how we tax them. We're going to be talking to somebody called Christabel Young, who's written a quite important book, I think, which basically destroys the myth that millionaires will move if you raise their taxes. He's taken tens of millions of people's tax data from the United States. He's looked at it across different US states. They have different levels of tax on millionaires. A number of them have millionaires' taxes. And he's looked at the impact. We're going to be talking to him about that. Then we're going to be talking to a millionaire uh, from the Patriotic Millionaires Club in the United States. I've got my begging letter at the ready. Karen Stewart. And she's going to be talking about why she thinks it is important to tax millionaires. So she's a millionaire who wants to be taxed and why she doesn't agree with Donald Trump's planned tax cuts. And then to sort of make sense of it all for the UK, we've got Prem Sika, who's the Emeritus Professor of Accounting at the University of Essex, who's thought and written a lot about tax issues and how we tax the rich in in Britain. It's interesting, isn't it? Because it's an argument you will always hear, don't put income taxes up too high or there's, do they call it a brain drain? Exactly, exactly. People will leave the country, but there's not much evidence for that at all. Well, you know, I mean, I mean, famously, a number of comedians and others threatened to leave the country before 1997. I think the late Paul Daniels, Jim Davidson, uh, said they were going to leave the country, and they didn't. No. And actually, I think a very high rate of income tax can be good for You'd art. like Jim Davidson to leave the country. Well, that, that would be good. But we would never have had the song Taxman by the Beatles if Harold Wilson's government weren't making them pay 90-something pence actually. in the pound and that the super is tax. True. That, is, that is So, you know, you can get some good songs out of it. You can. Um, and as well as that... Coming in to pitch ideas which could be potential reasons to be cheerful, we're joined by comedian Angela Barnes. Reasons to be cheerful, a podcast about ideas with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. So we're joined now by Christabel Young, who's written a new book called The Myth of Millionaire Tax Flight, How Place Still Matters for the Rich. Christabel, thanks so much for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Tell us, first of all, before we get to the results of your research, what is the myth that you are challenging or that, or that you were taking as your starting point? Uh, the novel by Ayn Rand, Atlas Shrugged, uh, captures, captures the spirit of it 
really well. In Atlas Shrugged, the rich go on strike and withdraw their services from society and sort of just start disappearing. And a lot of the suspense of the book is what's happened to them and where are they? And that feeds into the popular discourse, you can't tax millionaires because they'll leave your country or your state. Exactly, exactly. Um, basically, it's a very common it's a very common statement here in the US that people say, well, if you tax them, they will leave. Um, there's nothing more mobile than a millionaire and his money. And is it generally the millionaires putting that well, about? I think, well, I would say that um, it is not generally the millionaires that are putting that about. It's more the think tanks and, and political leaders um, that um, would say that they're speaking for uh, top income earners. But I very, when I've talked to, when I've talked to, to the sort of millionaire set um, about my research, they've been pretty interested in it and have tended to say, oh, yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense and that taps into my life. So, so, so tell us, Christabel, what your research has found. Right. Well, we're working with um, income tax data from the U.S., the U.S. federal income tax system. So we have data on very every, every high-income earner in the U.S. over more than 13 years. We're tracking them uh, over time and across states. So we can see when people move across states, they start filing from a different state. And, um, and we're looking specifically at millionaires and when they move. Um, and so, you know, the main thrust of this idea, there's nothing more mobile than a millionaire and his money. This was just something that, that sounds true, uh, but turns out to be completely wrong. Millionaires actually have very low rates of migration, well below the population average. Um, about 2.5% of American millionaires change their state of residency in a given year. 2.4%. Different states have different rates of tax for millionaires, don't they? So you might expect to see them move. Yeah, that's right. There can be substantial differences um, across states, up to 10% of annual income for the highest income earners between right. states. You think of the U.S. as sort of a world comprised of 51 small countries that set their own tax rates and, and have open borders and free migration between them. You're saying that you didn't find the big movement by millionaires. We see very low migration rates among millionaires, about half the rate of migration that we see among poor people. So if we want to talk about high mobility, we should be thinking about young people and people with low income. Um, and, and millionaires are, are, are the least likely people to move for the simple reason that you know, uh, top income earners are mostly the working rich. They're late career professionals in finance, business, law, consulting. They have a lot of network connections and social and business and professional ties where they live. They're well established in their careers and have typically been living where they are for quite a while. Almost all of them are married. We see this in the tax data. They're virtually all married. Most of them have children at home. All of these are things that make it much more difficult to move. Tell us um, about these ties of place, because you, 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 you look at that question, don't you? And you find that, that actually people sort of settle somewhere and they do tend to stay where they are. So there's an interesting puzzle that comes up because we see really clearly in the tax data that that people with um, high income have low migration rates. But we know from census data and other data in general that people who are highly educated have high migration rates. 
Um, so if you know someone who's moved across country or made a major move within their own country, they're probably a higher, higher educated. They've probably gone to college. Um, and so how is it that, you know, these highly educated people tend to be mobile, but high income earning people are not mobile? Um, because we think of them as the same people. And so how it turns out is that, that it is exactly at this intersection of people who are well-educated but who have low income, who are the most mobile. And who are those people? Well, they're people who are fresh out of college. They're people who are just beginning their careers. They've just finished college, and, and they're, starting, they're starting in their careers. And here you see migration rates that are very high, 12% a year, for example. But they drop off very quickly. So by age 35... Um, and certainly by age into age 40, basically everyone at ed, every education level has low migration rates um, so that high school dropouts and PhDs have basically the same migration rates uh, by age 40. But early on, you know, right after, after finishing school, there's dramatic differences. And, and you also looked at billionaires as well as U.S. millionaires, didn't you? So you looked at billionaires internationally. What did you find there? Exactly. So, yes, we look at the Forbes list of the world's billionaires and um, look at their migration over time across states, see where they were born and where they're living now. So sort of lifetime migration among the world's billionaires. This is everyone. This is every billionaire from every country on the Forbes billionaire list. We see that, you know, you would think of this group as being very mobile, but, uh, you know, about 84% of them live in their country of birth, you know, and so how does that compare to the typical, you know, the, the UK or a typical developed country? Well, normally we would expect to see about 11% of the population living in a different country than where they were born. So for billionaires, it's, it's a bit higher. It's about five percentage points higher. 16% versus 11%. Uh, it's not a big difference. Does it always correlate with uh, when they do migrate, they migrate to where the lower taxes are? What I would say is that there is a very small subset of what you might consider to be a sort of transnational capitalist class who have sort of unplugged from their nation state and are living across the world um, for reasons of cosmopolitan lifestyle and tax avoidance. And that really only represents about 5% of the world's billionaires. These are people who live outside their country of birth and moved after they became very successful. Um, and you see really clearly they tend to be living in London and Switzerland um, and scattered about other sort of tropical tax havens. Um, so there's certainly these people out there, um, but but like I said, they're a very small fraction of the billionaire class. They're about 5%. The other 95% of the world's billionaires live either in their country of birth or the place where they started their business or, or, or got their education. I'm struck that you say in passing that uh, tax havens, and you mentioned Britain, and you say this in your book, just say why we're a tax haven, because that may come as a surprise to some people listening to our podcast. Yes. Yeah, so for for foreign born uh, for foreign billionaires, foreign economic elites, uh, the UK is a tax haven because of the non-dom tax policy, essentially that allows people to exempt their overseas earnings. Um, so if you're a British citizen living in the UK, uh, you um, owe taxes on your international earnings. Um, but not if you're a foreign billionaire. And so this allows uh, people to 
fairly easily um, avoid the taxes of both their home country and that of their host country. And we see that basically all these folks live in, in London um, specifically. But I think, it's, I think it's very hard to justify this tax. Um, it's basically helping rich people of other countries avoid the tax obligations that they owe either to their home country or to the country that they're living in and are av- able to avoid um, paying those taxes. And t- tell me this. You talk about people moving, but of course there's been a lot of focus recently on people moving their money to tax havens, the so-called paradise papers, which has been coverage in the media of. Is it the case that while people, millionaires and billionaires, may not be moving as much as myth would suggest, people move their money to places where they can sort of hide it away and so on? Yes, people move their money, and we can think of this as an alternative way, as an alternative to actually physically moving. This is to put money in an offshore account and, and, and use that as a mechanism to avoid taxes. And um, there's been some really intriguing leaks in recent years, the Panama Papers, the Paradise Papers, um, that have a, have a lot of uh, pretty juicy detail in them, frankly. Um, but we can take a step back and, and see that um, there's some limitations. So who's using these effectively is sort of a pretty small fraction of even the millionaire class. This is, this is the true sort of, you know, billionaire set, I would say, we're getting into like the very top tenth or even hundredth of a percentile of the rich who are able to use this for substantial purposes. And I don't mean to undermine it or, or, or toss it aside and say, well, that doesn't matter. Right. Um, because it is very galling. And, and these, you know, when we read about these things, it does really aff- – uh, it's an affront to our sense of fairness, and that weakens um, the legitimacy of the tax system. So I believe it is very important. We should take this with a grain of caution and say, yeah, we need to be on top of this, but we shouldn't become, you know, we shouldn't fall into a sense of defeatism uh, and just sort of give up and say, ah, we can't tax the rich because they'll just hide their money away. It's really not true. Uh, they're only effectively able to hide s- small portions of it. Um, they want us to believe this. Uh, this is a narrative that serves their interest uh, to a great extent and helps to sort of demoralize those of us who are, who are sort of fighting for tax justice. Lots of people have said, have drawn the conclusion from this idea that millionaires will flee to say you can't really push top rates of income tax too high above 40 45%. Your research comes to some different conclusions, drawing on on the on the data that you've looked at. Where, where do you get to on on that particular question? Yeah. So the issue of what's the optimal tax rate, what's the what's the highest effective tax rate you could have um, before you start losing revenue. This is a classic uh, sort of Laffer curve. That's the idea that the more you tax people, the less revenue you get because they'll either avoid it or they won't work or whatever. That Arthur Laffer was the guy that that came up with this idea on the back of a napkin. Is that right? Exactly. Exactly. And um, I think that's absolutely right that there is there is some tax rate uh, above which uh, if you keep increasing taxes, you'll actually get less revenue because um, at some point these evasion strategies do kick in to such a high degree that you're losing more revenue than you're taking in. And then the only question is, what is that tax rate? Is that tax rate 5%? Is it 50%? 
Is it 80%? Um, and so just acknowledging that there's an optimal tax rate out there somewhere doesn't tell you very much about what, what that tax rate is. Um, and so my research certainly speaks to this. At the state level in the U.S., migration is a concern. Internationally within Europe, uh, it's a concern. Um, and, and really, at the levels of migration that we see in our tax data, both the, just the baseline migration rates and the tendency for tax-induced migration, moving from high-tax to low-tax states, these things happen, but the rates are so low that they basically have virtually no bearing on what the top tax rate should be. Um, for the U.S., my estimate is 68% is the top uh, effective tax rate that... Um, would see for combined state and federal taxation that's much much higher than what we see today in any state so that's quite at odds with what other people have found some of it based on this myth of millionaire tax flight if you're saying that that's in the u.s at least that that's the optimal level yeah that's right i'm not sure that's out of line with what economists um find uh, right, about right. the u.s but it's certainly out of line with what the current administration would argue uh, and what um, political actors have argued. And I think that there's other concerns that should be addressed other than just migration. My contribution, my central contribution here is that migration is a very small consideration when thinking about what the top tax rate um, could be. Christabel, that's incredibly well explained. And we really appreciate you joining us. And people who are interested in uh, finding out more can uh, buy your book, The Myth of Millionaire Tax Flight, How Play Still Matters for the Rich. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, Ed. Great talking to you. So we're joined now by Dr. Karen Stewart from the Patriotic Millionaires Group in the United States. She's also a professor of finance and an investment advisor. Dr. Stewart, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. I'm, I'm happy to participate. Tell us a little bit about the Patriotic Millionaires Group and what it does. We are a loose group of people whose net worth is at least $1 million, and some people uh, have hundreds of millions of dollars, but we share a concern about our country and its future. We're very concerned about the growing disparity in income and net worth among Americans the growing uh, anger that is expressed by our voters and the feeling of impotence that they apparently experience because nothing seems to be getting done. And the uh, efforts of the current administration to widen those gulfs is extremely disheartening, and we feel, or at least I feel, that they are potentially dangerous, could lead to more class warfare and potentially violence and also, people who have money could become targets of uh, violence or kidnapping, etc. But beyond that is the whole concept of we have plenty. We don't need any more. And we are stripping out our benefits and the, the net worth and the hopes of our citizens by demanding more and more and paying less and less. And, and Dr. Stewart, that's so interesting. How did you get involved in the Patriotic Millionaires? Well, I got an email. don't even know how. I was, was targeted, I guess, or solicited. And I thought, what a great idea. I, don't, I have plenty of, by the way, I don't have hundreds of millions. My husband and I have a few million. And we have more than enough to pay all of our taxes, to have two homes, 
to live very comfortably, to be charitable, to have enough food to eat and plenty of things to wear. We don't need any, you know, Caribbean islands or yachts or private planes. And I really question how damn much money do these people need to live a comfortable life. I really wonder if it's some kind of a mental disorder of greed, greed, grab, grab, especially since the consequences to our fellow citizens are so serious. So, so Karen, tell us a little bit about Donald Trump's tax plans and what they would actually mean in the United States. I've got this analysis here from the Nonpartisan Tax Policy Center, and they say the richest 1% would get an average tax cut of $129,000. For the typical, uh, the richest 0.1% would get uh, earning at least $3.4 million a year would get 722000 in tax cuts. So this is going to make a bad situation worse. Is that right? Exactly, exactly. And Trump is such a liar, and he so distorts things. But he has this group of people who really want to believe. Well, they want to believe. They they feel they need to believe that somebody's going to address this. And he's a bald faced liar. <clears throat> he says it will not help him. He lies. He knows it, but he doesn't want us to know it. And so many people here disbelieve the truth. So I'm afraid it's going to be a pretty sad situation as the truth begins to dawn on people that they have been used and abused and lied to. And I, and as a wealthy person, I say, some of us are going to get a lot of really nasty feedback. I don't need a tax cut. Yeah. I need us to have a decent infrastructure for there to be uh, people living. Uh, you've been here in the United States. I know yes. people here are living on the sidewalks, under bridges, walking the streets in desperation. That doesn't happen in Europe. Unfortunately, it does happen in the UK. But, I, you know, you're right. It's more extreme in parts of America. Uh, the American people seem to be reluctant to pay taxes. So there's a really a selfishness that is uh, stoked by um, the far right. And, and maybe some people buy the argument that if people have made this money, uh, they've done it themselves and, you know, they should get to keep it. How, how do you rebut that argument? We don't connect the dots, in, in, at least in the continental Europe. And I can't speak for the UK because I do think you're a little bit closer we are than the, most of the continent. For instance, most of Scandinavia. People understand the need to support the government and they understand that they get subsidized or free child care. They get higher education, they have decent roads, They have there's a safety net. Here we have this myth of the rugged individualist who can pick himself up by his bootstraps and do anything he wants. Well, there's a thing called luck and there's a thing called inheritance, there's a thing called being white, there's white privilege, there's male privilege, there's status privilege, there's educational privilege. All of that goes into making some people a whole lot more equal than others. We're really impressed to hear somebody who's at the upper end of the income spectrum making this case as part of a wider group. We don't have this equivalent in the UK. Do you know anyone in the UK that might start this group? I don't know, but I but it's in our best interest. I, I heard one of one man interviewed me, a very pleasant fellow, uh, uh, a couple of weeks ago, and he said that he met a man who said, who was from Germany, who said, I pay 55% income tax and and he said, I do not wish to be a wealthy person in a poor country. Well, it's it's not pleasant to, to, to wander through slums. It's not pleasant to have people begging on the street. We, I don't understand why people want millions and billions more. I, I mean, I, I just don't get it. What do they want to buy? 
how many houses do they want to manage? I'm really distressed about it. And, um, and, and Marie Antoinette paid with her head for saying, let them eat cake. Well, that's about what's going on here. And in the Bolshevik Revolution, they lined up the Romanovs and just shot them dead. Wealthy people need to understand you can't put your heel on someone's throat forever and stay safe. Well, look, Karen, and, uh, you, you, you may not feel that optimistic, but it makes us more optimistic hearing you. Thank you so much for joining us. You're very welcome. And I hope uh, this helps and it inspires some of your wealthy people to get on board. To make sense of all of this for the UK, I'm delighted that we're now joined by Prem Sika, who, as I said at the outset, is Emeritus Professor of Accounting at the University of Essex, but also is Professor of Accounting and Finance at the University of Sheffield and has spent many years working on these issues. Prem, it's great to have you with us. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, Let's just start off with some basics. We heard from Christabel Young earlier saying he doesn't believe that millionaires would flee in response to higher taxes. Does that accord with your intuition, with what you believe? Well, most millionaires would not really flee because they enjoy the quality of life, the security of their wealth and income, and generally all the facilities that UK and many other countries provide. So there isn't much danger of them sort of running away to other countries with their wealth. And give us a sense of the scale of the problem that we're talking about, because some people say, well, even if that's true, there's just a limit to how much money you can take out of those at the top. You think there is quite a lot of money if you did the right taxes, took the right measures that could be um, could be got for government and for public for public services. Yeah. Well, there are always limits uh, to what the state can collect in uh, taxes, but we are a long way away from that. Uh, if you look at uh, HMRC's uh, statistics, they call it tax gap. And they suggest about £34 billion a year is not collected. Uh, but you add to that, because they don't count certain other things, you add to that the kind of tax avoidance schemes used by Apple and Google and Microsoft and Starbucks of this world, add to that the kind of wealth which is hidden away in offshore trusts and other structures. And you're actually looking at something vastly more. There are models alternative to uh, HMRCs, and they suggest you are looking at something possibly three times as much. And that is simply based on current tax rate, current tax and So that would be like more like $100 billion, which is approaching the whole budget of the National Health Service, just to give people a sense of the scale of this that we're talking about. Th- that is absolutely right. Yes, it is a vast sum. And you just divide that by the number of households in the UK. And uh, you can see if we manage to even collect a quarter of that, how it could radically change the UK's economic circumstances and certainly do away with austerity. Okay, so so you think there's a big amount to be to be gained here. Give us the sort of ABC guide um, to what you think are the steps that we should take. And maybe we should just take them one at a time. I know that one thing that you think is important is transparency, because we don't quite know enough about where the money is of richer individuals. Is that right? Yes. Uh, As regards individuals, obviously, we have vast wealth uh, inequalities in the UK and indeed most of the Western world, which has uh, deadly consequences, not only in terms of uh, participation in democracy, but also access to many other things. So if we want to address that, we really have to think about uh, taxing wealth 
And if you want to tax wealth, well, it comes in many, many different forms. Wealth which is inherited. At the moment, we uh, offer exemptions of about £350,000 a year uh, per person, and anything arrest gets taxed at 40%. But of course, accountants and lawyers uh, advise individuals, uh, and they're able to form complex trusts and complex arrangements to avoid it. I think we need to do away with all that and simply have a simple principle all income wealth, whether it is inherited or it is a windfall gain, is taxable. And you just add it to the individual's uh, taxable income for that year. So in the case of inheritance tax, after whatever exemption is allowed, it is added on to the income for the year. And that means that those people who are paying at the additional rate of 45% will pay tax at 45%. We will do similar things with the capital gains. At the moment, we have a crazy arrangement that the capital gains tax are in the UK is at 18% and 28%, which is less than the marginal rate for income tax rate for many individuals. So accountants and lawyers are busy uh, converting <laughs> income to capital gains. Think- so we we just pause that. on this point about capital gains tax because I think it is important, yeah. and, I, and I'm afraid this is a decision made by the last uh, Labour government. You, you you end up with a system, and this I was at a lecture recently that Christabel gave, and 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 this came up in some of the questions. You end up with a situation where there's an incentive for people to convert their money into capital into capital because that's a tax at a lower level right. than income, and, and also. It's sort of based on an intuition, isn't it, which is that somehow the people who sort of invest capital are the real wealth creators and the people who go out and work for a living day in, day out are not the wealth creators. And and I must say, I the equalisation principle seems to me for income and capital gain seems to me to be a pretty strong one, doesn't it? Well, yes. I mean, if you look in terms of wealth creation, at the very least, you need three kinds of capital. You need investment of finance capital. You need investment of human capital. You need investment of social capital, that is social infrastructure. And I can't find any reason why uh, those who invest uh, financial capital should get a preferential treatment compared to others. Hence the reason for saying you simply add it on and tax it. Uh, basically, the people who are benefiting from this have not really done anything. You know, so there's a classic example. You add a Jubilee line or you build M25, suddenly the land around it becomes incredibly valuable, but the people who own that land have done absolutely nothing. It is simply because society invested. And then to say to these people, you can now keep the entire gains or pay tax at a lower rate, it just it is unfair and it does not even make any economic sense. Uh, I can't think of any economic rationale behind it. So let us tax it. And indeed, there are other ways of taxing this kind of wealth as well. But if we're just talking about capital gains at the moment, let us just add it onto the taxable income. And in terms of the overall marginal rate, that's the top rate people pay for their income. It's currently 45%. It was 50% under the last Labour government, but only for a short period. How high would you, that the Labour Party had some proposals on this in the last general election, how high would you go with that? I think it's hard to put a number because whenever you look at any country, there are all kind of historical, cultural elements get in the way. But I don't think it is unfair to expect people to pay 60, 65% at the higher end rate. Again, look, most people don't get rich by just because they work. (laughs) 
most people get rich because they are appropriating some, if you like, economic surpluses generated by others, or they have assets which have appreciated because somebody else has done something. So if you hold shares in Tesco and they have appreciated, well, chances are that the Tesco workers have generated the wealth. You're simply having a ride. So it doesn't seem wrong to me to tax that at a very high marginal rate. And that wealth then is recirculated, invested in uh, social infrastructure and facilities, and everybody benefits. And that also generates a huge multiplier effect as well. So I would say it should be at a much higher rate than it is now. And I think 60-65% would be about right. And then what about the issue of non-DOMs? So that's people who are, and this is a sort of thing that I took aim at in the 2015 general election, this idea that people can live here, work here, uh, but not end up paying taxes on their worldwide income here. Now, there's been some clamping down on this since the general election of 2015. But but Christabel Young describes that as making Britain a tax haven. <laughs> what should we do about that non-DOM status? Well, it is a tax haven. You basically find some rich billionaire can own a Chelsea football club and he does not have to declare... To take a hypothetical example. Yeah, of course, of course. And uh, he does not have to declare his total wealth to the UK tax authorities, but just pay 30000 uh, or so, and simply enable, simply enjoy all the infrastructure and facilities. That does not seem to be right to me. I think the US has a worldwide principle that US citizens are tax or have to pay tax on their worldwide income, minus, of course, a credit for taxes they paid in other places, but they have to declare it. So we don't even ask these billionaires to tell us what wealth they have got, how they got it. I think uh, general principles should be you live here, you pay taxes here. Now, uh, people would say people are here temporarily. Well, okay, we can specify a deadline. If you're here for two, three years, we can say, okay, you are domiciled somewhere else, you are resident here. Okay, we'll let you do that for two, three years. But beyond that, it can't continue. Once upon a time, the status was indefinite. It's gradually been reduced. Currently, the limit is coming down to about 15 years. That is far too long. And, you know, so when somebody from abroad arrives here, what do we find? They are... The citizens here have already funded the infrastructure, firefighting, police, roads, railways, etc. These people come and enjoy that. It is not unreasonable to ask them to contribute. So I would say we should abolish that status. We should consider possibly moving to a worldwide basis of taxing their income, but at the very least to say, look, after about three years, this is the choice you have. So if somebody has come to work in the UK temporarily, well, okay, you know, we recognize that and give them some concession. But beyond three, four years, I think it is unreasonable. And tell us about this, what they do in Scandinavia, because it sounds going to sound very odd to British ears, maybe. But in Scandinavia, or in some parts of Scandinavia, everybody publishes their tax return, well, everybody's tax return is publicly available. Is that right? Yes. In some Scandinavian countries, such as Finland, all individuals' tax returns are publicly And could that available. do something in this area? Could that make a difference? Uh, I think certainly it, it, it enables every citizen to produce a counter-account in a sense. If somebody says, I am tax compliant, 
well, okay, let's have a look. And if somebody and if people are aware that they have income from other sources, they can inform the tax authorities. So in a sense, every citizen is empowered to become an auditor of the whole system. But would it make a difference if you were looking at ways of taxing the very richest? Would it make a difference if we introduced that in this country? I, I think it certainly would. For example, my recollection is that the Labour Party's manifesto for 2017 calls for the tax returns of wealthy individuals to be made publicly available. Right. Now, it does not say that you have to list all your assets, but one can begin to collect information. For example, if the tax return has dividend X pound from X securities, ah, somebody's got securities. And if later, uh, when we come to somebody inherits that person's wealth and that security is not declared, you have the beginnings of some kind of a making of a database. And the HMRC can't do that privately. I mean, why can't they do that at the moment? Well, HMRC is thoroughly been incapacitated. It suffered enormous cuts right. over the years. And HMRC have publicly said that it only has capacity in any year to investigate about 35 high net worth individuals. Prem, what would you say to people who listen to this and say, this all sounds like anti-success, politics of envy, um, driving away rich people from, from the country? I think if we had more resources, we would have a better infrastructure, which is what every business wants. We would have more people going to schools, universities. We would have more people getting early health care. You don't have to but wait. But a culture of snooping on the rich. I mean, let's just say for the sake of argument. You know, Some people might say, look, they have those adverts about report on a benefit cheat. I don't like those adverts, but I don't like snooping on the, the rich either. I think put it this way, I would say for the best part of 200 years, there have been a constant political debate about what is public and what is private. That line is constantly redrawn, hence the birth of company accounts, information about health and safety, and many other things. All we are talking about is saying, look, we have given a lot of discretion to large companies and wealthy individuals, and they have abused it. The result of that is, is that ordinary people are paying more for a crumbling social infrastructure, or they are having to forego hard-won social rights. So it is in that spirit we need to redraw this line between what is public and private. And I have a question about tax havens. That's obviously been in the news recently, the Paradise Papers. This is, again, quite complicated, but tell us what is there something that can be done about people stashing their money in these overseas territories and nobody knowing about it? You've talked a lot about the UK in this discussion. What could we do about those places? Well, tax havens, uh, we've got to remember a large number of them are associated with the UK. And uh, first, again, tax havens, you don't get information about who owns the companies, who controls the companies. There is no register of trusts. Uh, if it is, it is not publicly available. So proper so, public register. Well, we need many things, you know. I mean, t tax havens, basically, they are places with low, no, low or no corporate tax Many or of the income British tax. territories. That, that's right. Yeah, Crown dependencies and overseas territories. These places offer secrecy. And enforcement program is basically one man and a dog. Believe me, I have researched them for years. You've met uh, the dog. <laughs> uh, yes, I'm still looking for the man, yes. Yeah. And uh, so, so we need information. And these people are simply not willing to share information. So that is what we need. The other thing is... Governments like the UK should insist 
that at the very least crown dependencies and, and over ter- overseas territories have transparency laws which match the mainland UK. It may not be glorious, but it is much, much higher than their own standards. So we don't have that. It is very easy to introduce sanctions against these places. All you need to do is flick off the switch on your satellite and these people are disconnected from the rest of the world. No financial transactions, uh, no TV, no radio, no telephone. On whose satellite? Sorry, on the UK? UK. On the UK, US, European unions, anybody. So I think. So we have a lot of power, but we're not using it. Absolutely. And I think uh, the reason is that uh, governments basically have uh, attached a great deal of weight to the comments made by the City of London and the wealthy elites who you may well be aware have been funding political parties uh, uh, over the years, and this is their kind of payoff. They don't fund. It's the, re- it's the return on their investment. It isn't one reason to be cheerful in this area that the public kind of, you know, the anger at the companies that don't pay their taxes, the tax avoidance, the Paradise Papers, it's pretty clear, isn't it, that the public are demanding change in this area? Absolutely. Public public has been sensitised to the cost, to the to the public cost of tax avoidance, especially when people have to wait a long while for health care and uh, find the ro- the roads are full of uh, potholes. So the public is sensitised. But you can see frequently it is put forward that, oh, well, uh, tax is so technical, so complex, people won't understand it. I don't buy that. Uh, because when you look at things like Panama Papers, Paradise Papers, it is ordinary people, journalists and others who have got together to make sense of it and driving the call for change. So ordinary people are not stupid. They can deal with the nuclear physics and complex mathematics. Tax is, after all, something man-made, and we can understand it. Prem, thanks so much for joining us. My pleasure. So there is a reason to be cheerful. If you raise taxes, the rich won't desert the country and go and hide in Bermuda or Monaco or somewhere. And that is an important insight, isn't it? I think the starting point that Christabel gave us, which is don't listen to the myth, look at the facts, and he's done such a lot of research on this, I think is really uh, important. I suppose the other thing that strikes me is listening to Karen. Where's the Patriotic Millionaires Club of the UK? People are probably a bit less conspicuous with their wealth over here. Maybe. People. Maybe, but I think we need it. But because my sense is that her counter to, oh, this is all the politics of envy, is it isn't. She says, I don't need a bigger tax cut. In fact, I think she'd probably want to pay more because it's the price you pay for a good society. And, and, and you know, there's this, there's this clip from Elizabeth Warren, the US senator that went viral, uh, which was all about, you know, it, he, she basically said, we'll, we'll post it. But it basically said, if you make a lot of money, fine okay good well done but you've done it on you know roads that were built by the public sector schools where you know kids were educated in in the public sector well in the uk a health service which is you know that's where tax money is going and you didn't and her thing was you didn't build it on your own yeah and in some ways what's better for you to spend your money on if you're one of these people who's generated these huge amounts of wealth for yourself you generate more by having a healthy population a healthy workforce you generate more by having that infrastructure and how many yachts do you need 
I I would say three. Yeah. Yeah. You're trying for your third yacht at the moment. Yeah, you know, you've got to have something to shoot for. But it's funny, isn't it, that idea as well, you hear about in America a lot, that people don't like the idea of taxes on the wealthy because they're sold the idea, well, that might be you someday, and then it'll be you paying 60% tax. But I, I don't think there's there's much truth in that. And also this idea of millionaire flight. And you see at the other end spectrum, you see, uh, I remember thinking this during the Brexit referendum when people are saying, oh, everybody from Turkey is going to come to the UK if they join the EU. But people have homes and they have networks and they have their, their own communities and their own roots. And, and I think, you know, just when you hear that capital gains tax fact, you know, that you're paying a maximum of 28 on capital gains, but a maximum of, well, I suppose it's 45 or perhaps a bit more um, on income. Well, well you know, what, what that doesn't, that doesn't compute to me. Yeah. Yeah. And I think what's interesting about this is that the public mood has changed. I don't think people do think it's anti-success. They think it's fair and they think it's about the kind of society you want to live in. Reasons to be cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. And if you've got thoughts about what you've heard on today's podcast about millionaires and taxes, please do get in touch with us or ideas for future shows at Cheerful Podcast. Or you can email at reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com or facebook.com forward slash reasons to be cheerful podcast. Now, Caroline Benton Marsh has got in touch with us. Ed and Jeff, hello from Chicago. Jeff, I was delighted to learn in this week's episode that you're not only a fellow American sandwich enthusiast, but indeed you're related to the fat shallot. It's a particular favourite of mine. This is Jeff's brother in law's sandwich place. Do enjoy a cocktail at the Revival Food Hall's bar with my best wishes. You picked a beautiful week to be in town, but please don't take the good weather with you when you return to the UK. Aha, this this is great. I mean, hopefully there'll be a, a significant increase in foot traffic at the Fatshalot as a result of our podcast. Definitely. You caused a bit of controversy by talking about your favourite sandwich. Yeah, there was a bit week. of a thing on Twitter where I'd mentioned that my brother-in-law um, does a very good grilled cheese. And I think there's a type of Brit who... Instantly, you use an Americanism and it gets the back up. And in my defence, I did say it's basically a fancy way of saying cheese on toast or cheese toasty. But the Twitter thing seemed to be that once it has other things on it, it becomes a melt. Yes, which I'm I'm not sure about that. Melt seems a bit. But you like just plain cheese, yeah. I'm, I'm happy to have a few different tuna. Items. You don't like tuna, because no, you know, yeah, nothing, vegetarian. nothing, nothing uh, animally or fishy. But I'll happily take some spring onions in there. Take a little red onion. You know, um, caramelised onion. I am noticing that most of what I like in there is onion. Yeah. But yeah, cheese and onion. Yeah. Do you like cheese and onion crisps? Yeah, I think, I mean, they're a classic, aren't they? Who, who doesn't like cheese and onion? M- much better than salt and vinegar. Yes. Oh, so you, you're getting very tribal there. I, don't, I really don't like salt I and reach vinegar. across the divide and I will embrace. I, you know, I one of the most interesting things I turned down was doing a Walker's Crisps advert with Gary Lineker after the election. What did they want you to do? We, did, we never got that far. Lindsay just basically put her foot down. This is Lindsay of, who runs your office yeah, and runs your just, life. It was just, I didn't, we didn't even get to the, oh, what would it be? I mean, I knew I couldn't do it, but I thought I'd at least find out whether I was doing something funny. I, I, I could think of several thousand reasons to do that. Maybe several tens of thousands. So your trip obviously, you know, provoked the big issues like grilled cheese. Mm. Mine provoked more trivial issues like parental leave. Mm. Um, this is from Mike, uh, Mike Hills. He says, hi, guys, really enjoyed your latest episode. Your intro bit about parental leave in Sweden was of particular interest to me as I'm currently in month seven of a year off work to look after mine and my partner's first child. It's been an amazing few months so far. It took me about a month to work out what my role was and I could best support my wife. But since then, it's been great. 
I really feel for all those dads who have to go back to work after only a couple of weeks. And then he goes on, I'm surprised more dads don't make use of the shared parental leave changes that came into effect during the coalition years, that's during the coalition government. But most employers still don't offer the same kind of benefits to new dads as they do for mums. So it's it's at a much lower rate uh, for dads if it's from the employer. So it often just doesn't make financial sense. It's such a shame that couples have to make a decision like this based on finances and not not what's best for them as a family. How did you find it when it was one or both of yours when you were leader? The the no Sam was when I was leader. Daniel was when I was climate change secretary and flying around the world uh, before the Copenhagen summit. I mean, you know, I I wasn't around nearly as much as I should have been. I did take the two weeks per paid paternity leave when I was um, when I was leader. Although there was some grumbling actually about that, always you know taking two weeks. I don't mean from the Labour Party, but just generally, it was like, oh, but that's know. unbelievable, isn't it? Because I, know, I mean, I imagine if you had taken advantage of the changes, and people it'd be unthinkable that a party know, leader would do that. But at the same time, there's nothing at all wrong with it. And it'd probably send out a good message to. And actually, I think Harriet Harman is pressing for there to be proper maternity leave arrangements in Parliament, because I don't think there there are at the moment. I think it's all a bit sort of you know ad hoc um yeah. and i think she for, for, for mps sorry yeah i mean i know that the mps are like obviously very very small minority and there's not much sympathy for mps but but i mean that's one of the things she's pressing for to make it more it's partly so that you know more women can go into being an mp and know that they can have kids and it's not you know they're not gonna be criticized for being off or something yeah yeah i only got the two weeks i was but self-employed so i got two weeks off what would be my annual leave allocation if i'd have taken any more than that i wouldn't be paid at anything no i think it would you know i really i feel really quite strongly about it so mm. uh this comes from phil who says you asked for topic ideas so i thought that bitcoin or cryptocurrencies as other brands are available would be a good one the fact that bitcoin is now worth ten thousand dollars would be a good peg i've spoken to or read great critiques of the whole exercise by great minds like the banker and uh, economist francis coppola and isabella kaminska of the ft i can see that the dangers of a bubble of loss due to fraud or hacking its use as a currency of choice by terrorists uh, and drug dealers could be a problem but there are many advocates and i am sure they'd be keen to come on the podcast who highlight the advantages of a currency that's not subject to government interferences as fiat money is uh, it's anonymity the ease of transfer from one party to another being accessible in any country without capital controls not subject to banking regulations i, I felt i feel when you're reading this that you're drawing on your phd in bitcoin studies it sort of <laughs> feels it feels like it feels like i'm talking to an expert this week there've been a lot of people on twitter say i've got no idea I must say, I am really clueless about it, honestly. I've had it explained to me and it still hasn't... I think it's one of those things that you grasp it for about five seconds and then it floats away. I remember Blockchain is similarly... I remember being on my honeymoon in 2013 and seeing a a news item on the television about it and saying to my wife, do you think we should buy a Bitcoin? Well, you you should have done. Well, I know. I mean, it'd be worth so much money now. My woes would be over. A Bitcoin and blockchain related. Uh, blockchain is mentioned in Phil's email. He says, I would love to finally understand what blockchain is and how it works. Well, we've got to do, I think we should, we've got to work out why it should make us cheerful, but I think we should do this on a future episode, don't you? Yeah. We've also got an email from Ewan Ferrer. I hope that's how you pronounce your name. And it's under the title, A Troubling Development, which always makes me slightly Ooh. anxious. Hello, Ed and Jeff, exclamation mark. I think I need your help. And you're exactly the wrong people to provide me with it. My internal monologue has started speaking with your voices. Ed's voice rears its head when I'm feeling calmly decisive, 
reasonable but firm. Jeff's voice appears when I'm being questioning or a little mischievous, feeling more than slightly huh. weirded out by this. Love your show, by the way. I'm a massive policy, big ideas. So geek. this is like the old cartoons. I'm the devil on the shoulder and you're the angel on the shoulder. But I feel quite sorry for you. And if that's if he's sort of if we're suddenly if he's hearing voices and they're <laughs> ours. <laughs> yeah, of all the voices. Does that yeah. ever happen to you? It, it it doesn't no, but I'd be keen to hear if it happens to any other podcast listeners. Yeah, it's true. Yeah, I mean, do you think it's that subliminal stuff that we're um, broadcasting without telling anyone about <laughs> backwards messages? And stuff. Exactly. I used to work in a record shop years and years ago in Macclesfield, and um, my boss let me make the 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 cinema advert. So they just had pictures of the shop up on the screen, and then they had me doing the voiceover going. Tapes, records, and compact discs. When it comes to music, come to Margin Music, just five minutes from the cinema. And I snuck in a backwards message, disparaging a rival record shop. I, How? I, I recorded myself saying, don't go to replay records, don't go to replay records, and then played it backwards, quietly. Did it work, that thing? Well, the place has closed down now, so maybe. As a result? <laughs> that is impressive. Yeah. Well, look, we want to hear from other people. Um, do you want to do it now? Do you want to do the bit? Let's, let's let Gail do it. Email us, reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com. Follow us on Twitter at Cheerful Podcast or search for our Facebook page, Reasons to be Cheerful Podcast. And here to pitch ideas which could be potential reasons to be cheerful, we're joined by comedian Angela Barnes. Hello. 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 And you've turned up in jogging gear. I have. This is so not me. I, I've turned 40 and this, Congratulations. this is what I do now. Thank you. Uh, I've tra- actually turned 41. I'm how, lying. But, um, how traumatic yeah. was it for you? I'm loving my 40s. Yeah, me too. I love it because the pressure's off. No one, you just, if you haven't made it in your 40s, you're not going to, it doesn't matter. <laughs> you know, it's just, I just feel like the pressure, no one's nagging me about when I'm going to have children or when I'm going to buy a house or get married. I love it. Yeah, yeah, you're resigned to failure for the rest yeah, of your life. that's it. I am who I am now. You're on the that's slow it. decline. Love it. Yeah, congratulations. Thank you. <laughs> so so why, why then bother jogging? Well, the main thing, I, I, my, uh, my boyfriend's very fit and athletic and, and sporty and he runs marathons and that things. Be annoying for you. It's really annoying. Yeah. And then I saw a photo. We went to a wedding together in July, and I saw a photograph of us. And I, because I've since July, I've lost three stone as well. And wow. um, yeah, I really did. I saw this photograph, and it looked like I, I was going to eat him. That's what it looked like. <laughs> it and I thought, I can't have that. That, that <laughs> we look ridiculous. We look like a number ten. Cannibalism. Yeah, not not so a good look. I just thought, if I can't beat him, join him. How um, did how did you lose three stone then? So I really, for about two months, I didn't drink, and I not that I drink a lot, but you know, it's empty calories in it and yeah. I uh, oh god I've turned into that person I hate myself and I uh, just stopped eating bread and cut down on carbs no carbs. How, no mis- carbs how miserable were you for pretty miserable right. for about two months and then started exercising more so I already swim a lot um, but I upped my swimming, started running, started, got a personal trainer. It's really impressive. And, wow. um, yeah, and, and now it's sort of coming up to Christmas. So now the diet is a bit less strict than it. I've decided to give myself yeah. Christmas off. A few treats. You know, and and yeah, you said no to the nice biscuits we bought. I, I noticed. did. Very, I did. Very, very firm and clear no. Yeah. Which I is good for us because it means more, more biscuits. More biscuits. For <laughs> biscuits for us. Are you still running out? Because you had your incident where you fell over the other incident. Way. Thanks for reminding me. <laughs> um, I have not been doing very much exercise. I, I, it's, the weather does my head in at this time of year. Mm. Uh, it's so dark, so early. I, as my wife was saying to me a couple of days ago, I haven't. It's not really built into my, you know, week doing lots of exercise. My wife mm. saw Ed Balls and Yvette Cooper with a personal trainer in the park the other day. Really? Really? Yeah. What were they doing? 
<laughs> not not strictly moves. Not they weren't they weren't doing Gangnam style. Suppose a lot of calories Gangnam style. I imagine. Yes. Yeah, yes. yeah. Maybe you could bring. I went trampoline. By the way, just sorry video. to go back to trampolining, yeah. but I went to tra- trampolining at the weekend. I lo- did you go to one of those big centres? Yes, yes. I've been once. I loved it. It was. It was great. Brilliant. You feel like a kid, don't you? You do. Just, that abandon of just throwing ah. yourself around a room. I'd go if it was a bouncy castle. I could be tempted. <laughs> trampoline sounds a bit. You need just a bit of me. royal element to it. Yeah. <laughs> so you'd be sophisticated before. <laughs> So, Angela, you brought in some ideas. I have. Um, what do you have first? Right, my first one is um, I think that they should teach flirting at school. And I went to a girls' grammar school. And what that meant was by the time I came out of school at the end, I had no idea how to talk to members of the opposite sex. And I know boys that went to boys' schools have a similar problem. And I think as part of that, learning just how to communicate with each other, even if you're at the same school, I think, there's, there's that segregation. Learning how to communicate with each other, but also teaching about consent and respect. Boundaries. Boundaries. Yeah. This whole thing that's blowing up at the moment in Westminster and in, in Hollywood and, and everywhere, um, there's some really interesting points coming up. And, and when the whole hashtag me too thing happened, I sat down and had a real think about sort of incidents that I can, and they're just numerous, obviously, yeah. for every woman can name many. But there's one thing that really stuck in my mind is that the amount of times that when I was a single person, You'd be sitting at a bus stop or at a bar or wherever and somebody comes and talks to you, a man comes and talks to you and you sort of try and make it clear you're not interested, you know, just sort of smile sweetly and hope they'll go away and they don't and they get... And the only thing that would make them go away is say, oh, I'm sorry, I've got a boyfriend or sorry, I'm married or he'll be here. And I suddenly thought, hang on, these men have more respect for a man who doesn't exist than for me saying no. Yeah, exactly, yeah. Yeah, I'm I'm willing to overstep the mark with you and harass you, but I won't make a cuckold of an imaginary man. Exactly. You know, I'll I'll back off now I know that a man might be upset. And that really occurred to me that, hang on, when are people taught that women should be respected? You look at what, you know, Donald Trump, for example, and everything that went on uh, with the NFL and respecting the flag. And he said, this man has more respect for a flag than he does for all women. Yeah. And, you know, I just, if I was a woman working with Donald Trump, I would wear clothes solely made out of American flags because then he just wouldn't, he'd have to respect me, you know? Um, so what would a GCSE in flirting look like? <laughs> I guess we'd, we'd have to change the name. That could cause some yeah. problems, I think, maybe. But just in, in teaching... Uh, you know, you do role play. You do role play of, you know, this is what happens when you meet someone of the opposite. These are the questions you can ask. These are the things you can't say. This is a uh, getting too close to somebody. This is the right distance. And just teaching people, because I know as well with everything that's going on at the moment, there's a lot of men going, oh, you can't even flirt anymore. So yeah, you can. Flirting's a two-way conversation. And the thing is that when they don't respond... That's when you stop. That's your cue. That's your cue. That then it's not flirting. That's when it's harassment. If you're flirting and they're not flirting back, simple. That's not flirting anymore. Read between those lines. Yeah, it's really simple. But somehow there's a and hashtag not all men. I know, but there is a proportion of men and women probably who don't know what those boundaries are. Flirting itself is quite an enigmatic. I'm not saying the boundaries aren't clear mm. because I think if people know really really know the boundaries and when they overstep them it's because they're overstepping them. Yeah. But flirting is quite an enigmatic concept, isn't it? 
I, I consider myself incapable of it. I think you flirt with me quite oh, a lot. Stop it. <laughs> oh, hang on, I'll, I'll leave you two to it. I'll, oh. <laughs> I'm just thinking if they'd had that in our school. Like, so already they had PE, which was uh, uh, potential for humiliation for me because I would be the person who, you know, when they're picking teams, you last. I'd be oh, the person I... left over. Yeah. And not only yeah. would I have the humiliation of being picked last, but there would be hostility from my team. Oh, we'll have him. <laughs> because I was we'll on their team. Oh. And I think yeah. the same would go for anybody who had to role play flirting with me. Be I think not, you're a very but, good flirt. Actually, oh, stop it! Oh, you guys, I'm not. My friend once told me that watching me flirt was the same as watching me put down a heckler. <laughs> right, I that I either go in too soft or too harsh. I wasn't enigmatic enough. I think that I saw it as a as a competition. So it, I, you know, I would do put downs or would. <laughs> And that's not attractive. That's negging, isn't it? <laughs> exactly. I, I was unwittingly negging. I Do think. you know about negging? Oh. A group of men, I think they largely live on the internet, but they mm. form these groups and go out and hunt in packs as pickup artists. And they've got all this. Somebody wrote a book about it. There's all these different techniques they use. Uh, one of which is they will go over and say something negative to a woman to. To, Intrigued? I don't yeah, even just understand. Try, really. They'll go and say something about her jumper doesn't, your jumper doesn't oh, fit, or I don't like your trousers, or whatever, and uh, to to engage her in sort of hard to get of, sort yeah. of thing. It's it, it's called the game, isn't it? The book. Yes. But it's and, and there's another book. There's a book called The Art Seduction. It's by a man called Robert Green. Who I don't know who he is, but I hope he's in prison. Throughout this book, he refers to his victim, <gasps> and there yeah. is a chapter. It's chapter fifteen. It's called Isolate Your Victim. Oh. That's the art of seduction, apparently, who's, to these who's people. Who's going through life thinking about people But I think if you're somebody like who's very shy and very... And these people are going, hey, pay me $50 and I can teach you to talk to women. You're vulnerable enough to do that, yeah. possibly. There are people who are so cripplingly shy and insular and, and introverted that I can totally see how they fall for that. But yeah. teaching Finally. people good banter, finding banter an easier concept to define. Yeah, yeah, it's teaching, I guess, how to how to have fun conversations exactly. without overstepping exactly. a line. Mm. All right, we'll have that one. Okay. Uh, what do you have next? Uh, I want more choices of my car's horn. <laughs> because like a ringtone. Yeah, because they all sound aggressive. Yes. And sometimes all I want to say is, sorry, that was my fault. Right. And there's no way of saying that. And so the person drives off thinking you're just an Good asshole. idea. You know, I want one that says, my bad, just so you can convey different messages because they're all conveying the same angry message yeah. at the moment. I like an Aruga horn. I think they sound quite, quite friendly. They, like yeah, Aruga. It's you with know? the old 80s. Like, duh, 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 oh, yeah, what happened to them? Yeah, you don't yeah. have them anymore. I mean, I think we should do a call out to all of those horn manufacturers out there. <laughs> they definitely Where is the, like, you know, funny horns? Yeah. yeah. Are, you, are you a big horn user? I think you've asked me that in a previous episode on, on, on honking. Uh, Are you asking him really bad if he's horny? Is that what you're doing? Um, uh, I've gone all uh, red in the face. Um, See, I'm terrible uh, at yeah, yeah. He doesn't know the difference. Um, so no, not really. But I think if I had a if I had a kind of range of horn noises that I could make, I think I'd be much. Uh, I'd be, I'd be much more likely to use it, yeah. so to speak. Yeah, yeah I do. Because I'm scared of using the horn because I don't want mm. to upset anybody. Yes. And I don't want to be... But also it's like that thing, if you give somebody the right of way, yeah. well, you can sort of wave or, you know, you flash your lights at them. But yeah. actually a sort of horn, the horn doing a sort of thanks a lot. Yeah. 
Noise. Well, the horn should technically be only used to convey "I am here," according to the highway code. Yeah, but it's not. Says the it? non-driver. I mean, yeah. <laughs> but my dad was the driving instructor. I honestly for a while. think there's a market gap here that you've you've discovered. Yeah, I think so. Could this be our ticket out of this hellhole? You could do be. this. Yeah. <laughs> Jeff and Ed's horns. <laughs> Hang on a minute, this is my idea. Sorry, sorry, sorry. That's all we do. We expropriate people's ideas. We don't give them commission. And basically, you know, we then, we change our phone numbers. Because everyone got the number for the patent office. All right. um, What what else do you have, Angela? Okay, I've got, I want to get rid of quiet carriages on trains because they don't work. And instead of quiet carriages, I want family carriages where there's stuff for your kids to do. Uh-huh. Because I, I feel so sorry when I see a family get on a and people are tossing because their kids are making a noise. But train journeys are boring for kids. And I went to Switzerland. I was doing some gigs in Switzerland and they have these massive double-decker trains and they have children's carriages that have little slides in no. and games wow. for them to play. Are you and they were brilliant. Yeah. Suddenly makes Switzerland seem more interesting. Yeah, I know, right? Uh, so there's fun things to do in Switzerland if you're a kid. And I thought that makes perfect sense to me because then if you've got kids on a train, you go in the family carriage, your kids are entertained, you're not annoying the sniffy people who people are very it. sniffy in the quiet carriages oh I oh, think the other day the well, hang on I saw on Twitter the other day it didn't look like a quiet carriage that you were in oh Coach C honestly I had such a riot on Ed was live tweeting his train journey I mean that was like uber banter there were women on who were going for a weekend together um, in London and they'd been doing it for nine years and they'd kind of gradually kind of there were more and more of them who were part of this and it was just absolutely brilliant and then there was the Church of England so shout out to them they may be listening to the, the Church, Church of England Church of England <laughs> Research division, uh, who were also on the train, party and there were such nice people. And we had a long debate about Brexit. You know, were, how did people Sounded vote? Less like a party carriage. Yeah. No. Well, it's sort of party carriage and a bit and, and a bit of things. But I, I, I think you're on. I think Grand Central do have little boards like. Is it monop- not Monopoly board? Something on their... On the table. Yeah, on the oh, tables, I think. Like a chessboard or something. Um, or like a chessboard. Um, but Jeff kept sending me these pictures from Chicago. He was recently in Chicago. Um, and he kept sending me pictures on the double-decker trains. It's just you? exciting they to be high up, up in a train. train. Just fly. <laughs> and, did, and people use them and it was yeah. all... Yeah, it's just a main sort of intercity kind of train. Although there were no slides on my train, so I feel yeah, a little cheated. Slides. But what it was about- empty. Uh, the, the family carriage was empty. We went on a, on a weekday and, and uh, definitely had to go on a slide. And also first class is always unbelievably empty and then everybody's shoved in the... You know what I mean? It's yeah. sort of... Yeah. But what do you think about the culture of the quiet coach, though? Well, I, I think just, it's becoming out, outmoded, right? Yeah, I like I like the idea. I understand the idea of it. Some people want to get their head down and do some work, yeah. but you can't. I don't think you can't police it, and you can't. And it just makes people angry. So, so what does quiet mean? It used to mean you can't use your phone in there. Yeah. Can't use your phone. Can't have loud conversations into the vestibule for the for the phone conversation. Yeah. But but what about what about if you're you're sharing a table with a loud voiced person? Well, you tell them to shut up, right? Mm. I just think? find it. It think... just makes people wound up, and I yes. just, let's just get rid of them. Okay. Yeah, um, I, I mean, if if we were scrapping them in favour of carriages with slides and whatever you're on, yeah, yeah you're on. That's a, that's a great idea. Brilliant. Uh, and I've got one more. Is um, I I'm a bit obsessed with Cold War bunkers. That's my thing. Oh. Right? I've got a little obsession with them. There were 1,500 of them built across the UK in the Cold War period. Really? Yeah. Some of them have been demolished. Some of them are just left to rack and ruin. But there's quite a few that are still out there. And I think we open them up. To the public because they were designed for if you know, it all kicked off in the 60s 70s they were designed uh, for government use only not for the likes of me and you. Ed would have been all right yeah but we would have been shot if we tried you. to get in there well this is interesting so when you were leader of the opposition presumably you were on the list the guest list for the bunker in the event of cold war you maybe dropped off the guest list now Ed I probably am. They've probably revised I'm Probably it. on the reserve the, wait- <laughs> the, the waiting list 
<laughs> if anyone else drops out, so I can't use it. Well, I think now they've all been decommissioned, they should give them to us. We won't. In event of nuclear, do we know war, where we they are? We know where a lot of them are. There's there's some are open to the public. There's a brilliant one in Essex, my favourite one, Kelverton Hatch in Essex, which is one of the. There were twelve regional seats of government bunkers, massive ones, seriously, like the size of two football pitches. I learned so much from this podcast. And um, oh, you should get yourself down to Kelverton Hatch. It's brilliant. Maybe we should do one well, live. Maybe we should do a live episode. Oh, please, please, please invite. Content. I know to there's that, a whole network them. of them under Manchester because I was at local radio up there. I was talking about it, and somebody mm. called in and said. If you walk around the city centre, if you walk around Chinatown, you'll see a building that looks like just a regular electricity substation. But actually, it's a hydraulic lift mm. down into the bunkers. And they've got a whole pub down there. They all have, they uh, all have could, BBC studios in, the big ones. Yeah, and have, you could you get like whole Green Goddess fire engines down yeah. there as well. It's under Wiltshire. You've got Corsham Tunnel. I'm really obsessed with this. But, <laughs> but under Wiltshire, Corsham, um, which it's not open to the public yet, but I'm trying to get in there. Uh, they've got big roads, like 60 miles of roads underground. You Serious? Uh, yeah, they've got a bakery and kitchens and all like sorts. People in the bakery at the moment. No, they all most of them were decommissioned in the nineties. So right. they, but they had they were staffed to keep the places running. But they were designed so that in event of nuclear war, they could house the big ones, like eight hundred people for three months. How extraordinary! Um, well, maybe with Trump and Kim Jong Un. We, we should well, reopen My, my um, Edinburgh show this year, because when I turned 40, my boyfriend found a little bunker, one of the little Royal Observer Corps posts, so a small one, in the Welsh countryside. And he took me there for my birthday, for my 40th. It had been turned into a little guest house. And uh, we woke up on the morning of my 40th birthday was the day that Donald Trump was elected and we were in a bunker. <laughs> and <laughs> we just looked at each other and we're like, we live here now. Oh, <laughs> so, amazing. That's where we live now. But yeah, they're, they're amazing You should do places. a book of Cold War bunkers. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm pitching some documentary ideas, so let's, fingers crossed, there will be a... Well, I'm sure but somebody from the BBC will be listening and will commission you. there's going to be a sitcom idea there too. Oh, there certainly is. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> and that's mine too, let me put that... Yeah, okay, no, honestly, we, we, we won't steal them. The horn we might steal, but... <laughs> That's really good. In, wow. in Edinburgh this year, actually, my show was set in a bunker. So I did a show about turning 40 in a bunker. And um, I there's a, a big one of the big regional seats of government bunkers in Fife, about an hour, hour and a half drive from Edinburgh. So I sold That's where Gordon Brown tickets. lives. In a Is bunker. I'd never bunker. describe his, him as ever being in a bunker. And it was, I took 15 punters in a minibus to the bunker and we, I took them on a tour of it and then we did a show in the bunker. Gordon lives across, you know, from the um, Fourth Bridge. Oh, yeah. It's actually brilliant view oh. out across the Fourth Bridge. Strikes me as a man who'd have the curtains close a lot. Yeah. <laughs> I think he's um it's his sort of natural you know habitat and he kind of you know comes to life. Yeah, well, I know I I think he's sort of it's it's such a kind of it's quite rugged area but it's kind of quite beautiful. Mm-hmm. Like Gordon. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Angela, uh, thank you so much for bringing those yeah, ideas. Yeah, we loved it. Thank if, you if people want to want to come and see you I'm going on tour, so I'll be doing a week of shows in April at Soho Theatre and then I'm touring around the country uh in eight, March, April, May next year. So, um if people want to see me it's angelabarnescomedy.co.uk. It's all on there. Lovely. Thanks so much for coming. Thanks for having me. Cheers. Reasons to be cheerful, a podcast about ideas with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Thanks very much to Angela and to our other guests this week, Christabel and Karen and Prem. And thanks to Emma Corsham, who produces and edits the show with backup and research from Alex Feisbryce and Lindsay Todd. Uh, Gail Lofthouse is our announcer. James Deacon made our iDents music by Ed Seed. And Emily Power made our artwork. Ed, do you think I'll be able to do that bit at some point? 
yeah, if, if you want, I just thought you it, do it very well. It's a lot of. I thought it's a lot of effort. I thought maybe by this stage of the podcast, you've you tired you, yourself. What out. is an ident? It's the little things which go reasons to be cheerful. Oh, Those little things, the little jingles. Is that not Gail Lofthouse? I said her, didn't I? No, but who does? You said somebody else did the. Gail ident. does the voice. Yeah. Uh, James then put them together, and the the music that we have was written specially for us. James puts the ident. He together. put the uh, yeah. And, and what then, does ident stand for? Identity or something. I guess so, yeah. yeah, yeah. It's, our, we, we, it's our identity. I've always wondered about that. Our brand that. identity. Yeah. Um, I was going to ask you before we finish this week, would you like to borrow one of my awards? Because I know you were nominated for this award and you didn't win. So if it would make you feel any better, uh, if you want to take one of the ones from the shelf and you can keep hold of it for, for a week or two. What are you just giving me? <laughs> the Paddington Bear cold hard Well, stare. I got the silver. Yeah. And actually, I thought that that was extremely... Um, Extreme. No, I thought that was extremely, you know, uh, nice of them to give me the silver because, you know, I'm just a sort of, uh, it was really for a week on Jeremy Vine. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, you know, there was actually somebody who knew what they were doing who won. Gold is a bit Donald Trump, isn't it? It's a bit garish. I think silver suits you. Yeah. The the nice little silver streak at the front of your hair there. It's your colour. You did quite. Am I patronising you? You did quite sort of enjoy sending me kind of funny (laughs) uh, texts about it, didn't you? And but then you know, as I was leaving the award ceremony, yeah, um, I felt fine actually, and uh, you know, I felt really good for the woman who won. And, and to be fair, there was a worthy winner in Ellie Cawthorn, and she was surprised. You're so to gracious, have, she was surprised to have won. I went up to her and I said, "Well done." And then I, you know, I got on the tube. You know, it was okay. I told Justine. She said, "Oh, what Justine said? Oh, what happened? Oh, well, that sounds good, etc., cetera, etc." Cetera. And then this uh, young woman said to me, "Oh my." God, she said, looking at me, it's Nick Clegg. And and I'm afraid at that point I did uh, – that sort of slightly tested my patience. And I said, no, it isn't, actually. <laughs> For the first time out, I sort of feel – you know, and Tony Blackburn was there. Oh, was, really? Did, that, you, did you get that, to meet him? Uh, that was really exciting. Did you tell him about your cu- uh, chart countdown that you did a few, a few weeks ago? N- n- no, I didn't, actually. Greetings, pop pickers. Yeah. But he's kind of a legend, isn't he? He is kind of Being a legend. Being in the same room as Tony Blackburn. Well, there was there was that. Who needs a gold award when you've got yeah. to be in the same room? You, have Tony? you been nominated for one recently? No, not for a while. And, uh, you know, the last few times I was nominated, I'm not even sure I came away with silver. I, did, you I came, go, did you go to the ceremony, though? Yeah, and I, I came up with a theory that they were just inviting me there to taunt me every year and to remind me every year when I went to Moss Bros to hire a tuxedo that my waistline was increasing. But how many have you got up there? Um, up there, there's one gold, two gold, three golds, one silver, a certificate for something or other, another. Well, that's for swimming. (laughs) (laughs) I really thought, should I go to a trophy engravers and and get a little award just to make him feel better about himself? Okay. Well, now you know what you're getting for Christmas. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. He's good at swimming and he's been Jeff Lloyd. <laughs> he won a silver award at <laughs> Miller Band. And these have been reasons to be cheerful. Mm-hmm.